Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, the creator, host, etc., 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 all the business end of the show. With me is my good friend and co-host, Matthew. Hello. Welcome back again. Welcome to the Cult of Dark Poutine. Welcome to the Cult of Dark Poutine. When you're listening to this, we will have probably just been to the Rugby Sevens, because we're going to rugby in Vancouver. Yes. Yeah. So we're recording this a little early. We are. Yeah. So... Yeah, just a little break the fourth wall. <laughs> Ooh, we're actually two Sundays ago, people. <laughs> <laughs> we're two Sundays ago. I'll let you in behind the fourth wall. And thankfully, Matthew wrote the last episode, which was fantastic. By so the way. Mike wrote this one, so yeah. it evened out for the weekend. Yeah, right. Exactly. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. Yum. Oh, well, <laughs> just a simple yum simple this one. one. Yeah, love it. In early October of 1994, during a bizarre, nearly simultaneous sequence of murder-suicides in Quebec and across the Atlantic in Switzerland, 53 members of the Order of the Solar Temple were found dead in burned-out buildings. The deaths apparently fulfilled what the cult leaders claimed was the group's final transit, or return to unity with God, required before the impending end of the world. Even though it appeared to be over, more cult members were yet to die. Over a year later, in December of 1995, 16 members of the cult died in France. More than a year after that, in March 1997, another five cult members died in Quebec, bringing the death toll to 74. The cult's two founders, Luc Jure and Joseph de Mambro, were among the dead in 1994. However, some fear there may be future related mass murder suicides by followers still practicing in secret. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 188. Tuesday is Doomsday, the Order of the Solar Temple. To understand how something like this could have happened, we'll have to look closer at the cult's leadership, Jure and Dimambro. A bit of their history will help us get to the point where 74 members of the sect are dead. 
One of the Order of the Solar Temple's founders and most prominent public recruiter, Luke Jaray, was born on the 18th of October in 1947 in Africa in a city called Kikwit in what was then called the Belgian Congo. In the 1950s, Jaray's parents returned to Belgium where young Luke continued his schooling. Eventually, he went on to university and in 1974 earned a medical degree with an obstetric focus from the Free University of Brussels. While in college, though, Jure had become involved with a Belgian communist youth organization which gained him the attention of the authorities who placed him under surveillance for a time. In 1976, Luke Jure did a sharp left turn in his career and joined the Belgian army, becoming a paratrooper. Jure returned to Africa to fight against those seeking to wrest control of Zaire from European rule. There, in 1978, Jure took part in the Battle of Kolwezi, a joint French and Belgian airborne operation which resulted in the rescue of European hostages held by liberationist rebel forces from the city of Kolwezi. During his stint in the army, Jure had become disenchanted with the brutality of Western medicine and believed that a more holistic approach might allow for better results in patient care. He traveled the world looking into several different types of alternative medicine as practiced by shaman and spiritual healers, going to destinations that included China, India, Peru, and the Philippines. Again, Jure returned to Belgium where he took up the study of homeopathy and began practicing that speciality. According to healthlinkbc.ca, quote, homeopathy or homeopathic medicine is a medical philosophy and practice based on the idea the body has the ability to heal itself. Homeopathy was founded in the late 1700s in Germany and has been widely practiced throughout Europe. Homeopathic medicine views symptoms of illness as normal responses of the body as it attempts to regain health. Homeopathy is based on the idea that like cures like, that is, if a substance causes a symptom in a healthy person, giving the person a very small amount of that same substance may cure the illness. In theory, a homeopathic dose enhances the body's normal healing and self-regulatory processes. A homeopathic health practitioner homeopath uses pills or liquid mixtures containing only a little of an active ingredient, usually a plant or mineral, for treatment of disease. These are known as highly diluted or potentiated substances. There isn't strong evidence to show that homeopathic medicines are effective for any specific condition. Homeopathy has been called a pseudoscience, and healthlinkbc.ca goes on to say, quote, Some critics of homeopathy believe that there is so little active substance in a solution that any benefits from the treatment are not likely because of the substance, but because you are thinking it is effective. The placebo effect, end quote. But Jure's spiritual search was the major focus of his life. He became obsessed with the occult and things supernatural and paranormal. He read about those subjects voraciously. He also became fascinated with the Knights Templar, their doctrines, and the occult mythology surrounding the order. According to History.com, quote, The Knights Templar was a large organization of devout Christians during the medieval era who carried out an important mission to protect European travelers visiting sites in the Holy Land while also carrying out military operations. A wealthy, powerful, and mysterious order that has fascinated historians and the public for centuries, tales of the Knights Templar, their financial acumen, their military prowess, and their work on behalf of Christianity during the Crusades still circulate throughout modern culture. End quote. 
the Knights Templar were dismantled in the roles of the Catholic Church in 1309. Since the dissolution of the Templars, many other organizations, some in existence today, like the Freemasons, can trace their mystical roots back to the Knights. The Knights Templar and their blood-red crucifix symbol have become associated with legends concerning secrets, secrets and mysteries, such as the location of Christ's remains, the Holy Grail, and the Lost Ark of the Covenant, and the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Those stories, according to legend, have been handed down to a select chosen few since ancient times. A quick Google search will take you down a twisting and turning rabbit hole of occult symbolism and mysterious secret societies. Alan R. Warren wrote in his book, Doomsday Cults, that, quote, During the 1970s, Jurey joined the Renewed Order of the Templars, which was a neo-Nazi organization led by the former Gestapo officer Julian Oregas, end quote. Russell Miller's article in the London Sunday Times on January 29, 1995, claimed that Luke Jure had been, quote, in and out of a veritable solar system of ancient wisdom sects, and sometime between 1979 and 1981, he hooked up with Joseph de Mambro, end quote. Joseph de Mambro, the de facto leader of the Order of the Solar Temple, directed the cult mostly behind the scenes. De Mambro was born in Pont-Saint-Esprit in rural southern France in 1924. He was not as educated as Luc Jure and never went to university. His training was as a clockmaker and a jeweler at a trade school. He became an apprentice and later worked at those vocations to pay the bills. His interest in esotericism led him to join the ancient and mystical order of the Rosé Crucius, or Rosy Cross, the American branch of the Rosicrucian movement, which enjoyed great success in France during the years following World War II. De Mambro claimed he was a spiritualist medium and that he was able to channel the spirits of long-dead masters of the order. He rose through the ranks of the order to become the head of the AMORC Lodge in Nîmes, France, in the late 1960s and remained a member of the Rosicrucians until 1969. I find these guys fascinating. So I call them the Ro the Rosy Crossies. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Do you know where they come from? I have some ideas, but why don't you tell us? Okay. So many actually believe it was a hoax. So back in 1614, mm -hmm. in what is now Germany, mm -hmm. a series of spiritual manifestos were published, supposedly by an age-old secret order called the Rosenkreuz. Was ist mit Rosenkreuz? <laughs> so that's, I guess that's the German version of Rosenkreuz. Oh, yes. Jawohl. <laughs> so the Rosenkreuz. So it said that the founder of that order, a hundred years before on his deathbed, said, only share this information a hundred years after I die. And then, so in 1614, all these things were being published. But a lot of people think it was essentially performance art that got out of hand that somebody faked this in 1614, oh, no. wrote this stuff up, and it keeps going until it becomes sort of mainstream in the 1910s. Wow. Yeah. It's like as if somebody would pick up on Orson Welles' Mercury <laughs> Radio presentation mm. of War of the Worlds and say, this actually happened. Uh, yeah, we've all had practical jokes that have gone too far. Yep. I think this one's really going too far. Wow. As the New Age movement began to boom in the late 1960s and early 70s, de Mambro quit the clockmaking and jewelry business for good to follow a career as a lecturer, teaching others about occultism and mysticism. Mike, and this is why there are so few horologists these days. What, what? A horologist? Clockmaker. Okay. I can't find a clockmaker for the life of me. Yes. I blame this damn occult industry. All the good horologists are moving over to the occult. 
There you go. Do you know a clockmaker? Uh, no. Neither do I. See, right there. Fair enough. <laughs> DeMombro joined the Argony movement and traveled to Egypt and Israel, where with his wife, he allegedly conceived his son Eli in 1969 on Mount Carmel, a mountain associated with the biblical prophet Elias. After a minor skirmish with French justice in 1971 for writing bad checks, DeMombro moved to Animas near the Swiss border and later to Switzerland. There, he started in 1973 a full-time career as a teacher of yoga and occult philosophy. From that time on, DeMombro established an astonishing number of secret and not-so-secret societies, organizations, and associations whose names may easily confuse both the initiates and the scholars. His main venture in the 1970s was La Pyramide, in which his closest students lived communally. In Geneva, DeMombro developed his skills as a charismatic speaker and a teacher. He began to present himself as a representative of the Great White Brotherhood, that group of evolved beings which many theosophists believe guide the evolution of the human race. He claimed to be the reincarnation of several notable ancient religious and occult figures, including the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten and Moses himself. So you're a little bit of an amateur Egyptologist, aren't you? I am. I love that stuff. So you probably... Did you know that Freud wrote a book... Uh, called Moses and Monotheism in the 1930s. I have not read it, but I'm aware of the book. Yeah. So, so Freud said that he thinks Moses was actually born into an Egyptian household and mm -hmm. was one of Akhenaten's priests. Yes. And as you know, Akhenaten established monotheism. So as opposed to having a pantheon of gods, introduced, he was the first monotheist. And Philip Glass actually did an amazing opera called Akhenaten. So Akhenaten claimed that there's only one god, and that was Aten a sun god. Mm -hmm. And later, some scholars thought that maybe Moses and Akhenaten were one and the same. Yeah. And it's just historical mythology. So this dude read Freud. Yeah. But I have a question for you. The Great White Brotherhood. Yes. Is there a sort of a white supremacy bent in this group? Well, let's just say I looked, it's like it involved people like Madame Blavatsky and people like that who were high up in the theosophist world at mm -hmm. the time. And there are not a lot of people of color that I can see in any okay. instances of the Great White Brotherhood. Okay. I might be wrong. There may be some. But in my brief look at what the Great White Brotherhood is or was, mm. I did not see a single person okay. of color. Which I find interesting because if he's claiming he's part Akhenaten, yeah. whose mother was Nubian and his father Egyptian. Right. And then Moses, who was a Hebrew prophet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Moses like... wasn't a white guy, folks. <laughs> I know Charlton Heston was. But, but interestingly, I watched Geraldo one time when they had a bunch of white supremacist people on it. And uh, oh. one of them said, well, everybody should speak English. The Bible's written in English. What's wrong with those people? <laughs> That's like the story I heard about the senator in one of the southern states who was against Spanish being um, taught in schools. And he said, quote, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> oh, my head. How do people vote these people in? The stupid, <laughs> it burns. <laughs> Jesus, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Okay. It was in the early 1980s when Luke Jaray and Joseph DeMombro first came into contact with each other. DeMombro, who'd heard of Jaray's talents for speaking the truth about matters esoteric, invited the homeopath to a lecture 
at his latest group, then called the Golden Way. People belonging to the Golden Way, also known as the Fraternity, held all assets in common. Along with them lived people belonging to what was called the Community, who kept their income, paid a rent, and bought tickets for food and beverages. Members sold their homes and handed the proceeds over to the cult leaders. They were to hold no real assets of their own, for spiritual reasons, of course. All was to be turned into the community and held by its leader, DeMombro. This method of financial servitude to the group was fostered in all of DeMombro's following occult enterprises. DeMombro and Joray hit it off right away and felt that they had been brought together by fate to build their own sect, which they would lead together. In 1984, the pair founded the Order of the Solar Temple. The temple was centered in French-speaking Europe and Quebec. The group's presence in Canada was also meant to reach the English-speaking world, mainly the United States, where they saw that the money was. Jurey would be the face of the order and traveled around using his considerable speaking talents to capture audiences and recruit members, leaning on his medical credentials to give weight to what he had to say. From thefreedictionary.com, quote, From 1984 to 1990, he claimed to relay the teachings of the masters of the Rosicrucian Order of the 16th century, who remained alive and hidden in a secret underground retreat near Zurich. These esoteric pronouncements, together with spiritual phenomena produced during various public demonstrations, convinced many new members that the time of the apocalypse was drawing near and the best way to survive the growing negativity of society was in the safety of the Order of the Solar Temple. By 1989, the cult had gathered about 500 members, most of them in Switzerland, France, and Canada, end quote. It was told later to McLean's magazine that Luke Jurey would have sex with female members in order to give him spiritual strength to perform his ceremonies. Joseph DeMombro's role was more behind the scenes. He was writing and developing the group's doctrines, rules, its organizations, and rituals which they would practice. All was based, DeMombro claimed, around readings from other related organizations and through messages channeled to him from the mysterious masters in Zurich with whom only he and Luke Jure were able to communicate. As with many of these types of cults, the rhetoric turned from the groups being a chosen few who had been saved and took on a more ominous tone. The leaders, DeMombro and Jure, began to make predictions about the impending end times. Jean-Francois Meyer wrote that throughout the 1980s, the Solar Temple's doctrine had grown increasingly apocalyptic. Even in his public meetings, Luke Jure had frequently alluded to cataclysmic upheavals that threatened the planet with imminent destruction. The apocalyptic thinking of the Solar Temple had clear ecological connotations, and Jure's lectures often described the Earth as a holistic living entity who could no longer endure what humankind was inflicting on her. Dates came and went without the prophecies being fulfilled, and by the early 1990s, some disenchanted members of the group were questioning the authority of Jure and DeMombro. Some wanted to leave and wanted to take their money with them. In 1991, Tony Dutois, a man who at one time had filled the role of handyman, technical assistant, and confidant to DeMombro, came forward to the group with some information. According to CBC News, Dutois had helped by installing electronic devices in a Quebec chalet that projected images in order to trick members into believing they were seeing spirits summoned by Jure during ceremonies. At some point, Dutois discovered that DeMombro was using the money from the temple's funds for his own use, and before leaving the cult in 1991, he told the other members not only of the thefts, but also of his involvement in the electronic trickery. Upon hearing of Dutois' betrayal, DeMombro quietly vowed revenge on the former handyman. 
with Ellie DiMambro, Joseph's son, leading the way in what his father Joseph saw as a major betrayal, 15 other members resigned, calling Joseph a charlatan, and were disgusted by the embezzlement of the temple's money by Jurey and DiMambro. As a result, there was growing internal strife within the temple, mostly among DiMambro's direct underlings, who were scrabbling for more control of the group and plotted to overthrow Joseph DiMambro. From Our Terrestrial Journey is Coming to an End, The Last Voyage of the Solar Temple by Jean-Francois Meyer. Quote, When speaking to police, a Canadian member who broke with the Solar Temple in 1993 summarized the feelings of many defectors. He said, I did not feel that the people were living what they preached, and I was tired of the infighting and never being able to find out what was going on, so I left, end quote. Oddly, although some members were made aware of all this information, they felt that the fakery was only intermittent and chose to stay with the cult, convinced that many of the spirits channeled by DeMombro were actually real. DeMombro and Jure were concerned with the cracks in the lucrative organization they'd founded, and they'd become aware of the plans to oust them. Both were wealthy men, owning several properties in Europe and Canada, which they used for temple activities. The pair began to talk about a solution they were being directed to, called the Final Transit. One member later told how Joseph DeMombro cryptically described the Final Transit. He said, DeMombro explained to us that one day we'd all be called to a meeting at which a transit would be accomplished. It had to do with a mission, with a departure towards Jupiter. He said to his listeners that they had to be on call 24 hours a day so as not to miss the departure, and that once the order was given, we would have to move quickly. End quote. Some of the group's writings talked about the transit, saying, The idea of the passage from one world to another might worry some of you. I assure you that you are going towards a marvelous world which could not be, in any case, any worse than the one you are leaving. Know from now on that after the passage, you will have a body of glory, but you will still be recognizable. You will no longer need to eat, but if you want to eat, you will be able to do it without earning your bread with the sweat of your brow. Your eternal body will be subject neither to aging, nor to pain, nor to sickness. End quote. Luc Jurey got into trouble with the Quebec police in 1993 when Temple insiders acting on his orders tried to buy black market guns with silencers. It was not clear at the time why Jurey was trying to buy the weapons, but the events of October 1994 and later investigations would give some clues as to what sinister business he had in mind. To escape prosecution, Jurey then fled to Switzerland and would live the final year of his life there. And we will take a break right here. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back. What are your thoughts, Matthew? I'm sitting here thinking how easy it would be to start a cult if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that they're spouting it would be completely laughable. 
mm. if it didn't end up with such deadly results, which we're probably going to find out soon. Right? right. But it just seems like there's such an easy formula to it. Mm-hmm. Right. We should start a dark poutine cult. No, oh, I don't know. Send us your donut money. <laughs> the circle of the donut represents eternity, Mike. Yeah, it's infinity. The hole in the donut represents mystery, and donut. only Mike and I are allowed to eat the Timbits because we are the holers of the mystery. Send us your donut money. <laughs> I'm whispering too much. I'm trying to be dramatic there by whispering. Yeah. That maybe people can't hear me. Exactly. Okay. Well, they're going to have to listen again because if you want to listen to the cult leader, you got to listen. Oh, boy. <laughs> The group was breaking up. DeMambro and Jeray were losing control, and they knew it. So rather than say goodbye to their now significant fortunes and power and give it over to the other members of the group who were rising up against them, throughout 1994, the pair put a plan into action that would lead to the final transit for the members of the Order of the Solar Temple. In spring, DeMambro told his disciples, quote, There are people who claim that I have taken everything from me. What I have taken, I haven't taken it for me since I leave everything behind. But I will leave nothing. I will leave ashes. I will leave nothing to the bastards who have betrayed us. The harm they have done to the rosy cross, that I cannot forgive. What they have done to me, it doesn't matter. But the harm they have done to the rosy cross, I won't forgive it. I cannot. End quote. DeMambro and Jure not only believed in earthly opposition to the group, but also projected this opposition onto a supernatural plane. Evil forces and an antichrist were confronting the group and required being dealt with in an extreme manner to exercise the demonic entities. On Tuesday, October 4, 1994, at 7.30 a.m., local police and the fire department responded to a blaze at a villa in the small community of Morin Heights in Quebec's Laurentian Mountains, just northwest of Montreal. Inside what was left of the burned-out residence, police discovered five bodies, four adults and an infant. The owner of the villa was Joseph de Mombro, but he was not among the five dead in the charred building, nor was Luke Jouret, his partner. The details here are rough. The dead were 35-year-old Swiss national Tony Dutois, his wife Nikki, and the couple's three-month-old son, Emmanuel. The child had been stabbed six times with a wooden stake in a ritualistic murder. As de Mombro had determined the child was the Antichrist, and his parents, called traitors to the temple, were also put to death. From James R. Lewis's The Order of the Solar Temple, DeMambro's daughter, Emmanuel, whom Nicky Dutois had been babysitting and whose mother was Dominique Bellaton, was regarded as the cosmic child, an exalted being with a precious future. By calling their son Emmanuel, the Dutois had usurped the unique position of Emmanuel DeMambro, the cosmic child, and had in fact transformed their baby son into the Antichrist. DeMambro's former handyman and his wife and their child had been lured to DeMambro's chalet to visit their old friend Dominique Bellaton in town from Switzerland. Bellaton knew full well what was going to happen to the Dutois family. According to CBC, it is believed that DeMambro exacted revenge on Tony Dutois by selecting Joel Egger, a 34-year-old fanatical member of the cult, to murder Dutois, his wife and infant son. After the murders, Bellaton and Eggers fled, hopping a plane to Switzerland days before the blaze. The other members found dead in the chalet were Colette and Jerry Janoud. It is believed that they set fire to the property and then killed themselves, as it was, according to DeMambro's orders, their time to make a final transit. 
the Dutois family, it was determined, had been dead inside the chalet for four days before the fire was set. Twelve hours after the fire and discovery of the bodies in Morin Heights, Quebec, there was another fire at an OST-owned property in the village of Chiray in Switzerland. Once the fire had subsided, Swiss fire crews and police entered the property only to discover a macabre scene. According to CBC, in the property's barn slash garage, they found, quote, a macabre chapel draped in crimson fabric and bathed in colored lighting. A radio hanging from the top of the door is playing an audio cassette with a voice rambling on about astrology, end quote. The mirrored walls gave an even more eerie appearance to the 15 charred bodies on the barn's basement floor. Some were clad in white, red, or black capes, and two or three women wore long golden robes. All were laid out on their backs in what has been described as a star formation, with their feet all pointed toward the middle of the star. Investigators found four more bodies on the property, bringing the total to 19. It appeared that some had been shot while others had their heads inside plastic bags, evidently having died by suicide after dispatching the other, less willing members of the cult. All of them had been drugged. Among the bodies were 12 women, 10 were men, and there was a 10-year-old boy. Another event occurred at almost exactly the same time, some 60 kilometers away. Near the Italian border, in the Swiss village of Grange-sur-Salvin, there were reports of another blaze, this time at three chalets on one property. Inside the chalets, police found 25 more badly burned bodies. From the New York Times, the police said they found 15 bodies in one chalet, two in another and eight in a third, where the search was not completed for fear the chalet might be booby-trapped. According to the Guardian newspaper, Forensic experts at all the fires found sophisticated remote control devices designed to set off the blazes, with electrical wires attached to gas tanks, although at Cherry it had failed to ignite. There were also signs that petrol had been used. It was unclear whether Jure and Demombro were among the dead at the time. It would take a while to identify the bodies at all the scenes. Interpol put out a be on the lookout and international arrest warrants were drawn up for Jure and Demombro. Some believe they had escaped with the cult's cash. Suspicious international monetary transfers made by DeMombro in October of 1993 seemed to confirm that he was up to something. DeMombro received on three separate occasions $100,000 from Switzerland, money which was then deposited into bank accounts which he had opened in Sydney, Australia. Joseph DeMombro had also obtained no less than five passports in seven years and his visas showed he had made numerous short international trips, including several to Malaysia, perhaps setting up some kind of escape plan for he and Jure. Investigators determined just over a week later that Luke Jure and Joseph de Mambro were indeed among the dead at the fires in Switzerland. The night before they died, Jure joined de Mambro and a small group of members in a lavish last meal together at a local restaurant, calling it their last supper. With the deaths of their leaders, the group disbanded, but soon, more people connected to the cult would die. More than a year after the events in the fall of 1994, on the night between the 15th and 16th of December 1995, another mass murder-suicide involving 16 people occurred in the Vercross Mountains of France. The scene was not discovered until December 23, 1995. Two former members of the Order of the Solar Temple had shot 14 others to death, after laying the bodies out in the familiar star formation, as seen in the cherry barn, the pair then set fire to the building and killed themselves with their own handguns. The death toll would eventually rise to 74. 
on the morning of March 23, 1997. In the small village of St. Casimir, Quebec, police and firefighters responded to yet another blaze at a home owned by former members of the Order of the Solar Temple. Five bodies were found in the remains of the home. In a shed behind the home were three teenagers, children of one of the couples who had died in the fire. The teens, 13, 14, and 16, were alive, but they had been heavily drugged and had escaped to the shed, saving their lives. From the CBC News website, quote, the three teenagers, Tom, Fanny, and Julianne Quays, were hospitalized overnight after the fire. The eldest son later identified the bodies for police. Among the dead were their parents and a grandmother. From Lee Meller's book, Rampage, quote, A final attempt at mass murder-suicide was thwarted in 1998, when it was learned that a German psychologist had convinced 29 members to ride the Inferno from the Canary Islands to Sirius. There were rumblings that there might be more cult deaths as the millennium approached, but those deaths never came. With Jure and DeMombro deceased, authorities were looking for someone on which to pin all the mayhem. They focused on Michel Tabachnik, an internationally, re an internationally renowned Swiss musician and conductor. He was arrested as a leader of the Solar Temple in the late 1990s. He was indicted for participation in a criminal organization and murder. He came to trial in Grenoble, France during the spring of 2001 and was acquitted. French prosecutors appealed against the verdict and an appellate court ordered a second trial beginning October 24, 2006. Tabachnik was again cleared less than two months later on December 2006. Why did all this happen? Religion.info summed it up this way, quote, Finally, the transit presented an attractive response to the movement's decline. The temple needed to be redynamized periodically. The transit also allowed the group to escape from perceived threats and offered a way to assert dramatically its claims before the entire world. Creators of their own legend, the core members of the Solar Temple considered themselves as an elect circle, heirs to an uncommon destiny, who were invested with a cosmic task to fulfill. Believing that they would become gods, they followed the flute player in a dance of death and paid the ultimate price, end quote. During one episode of NBC Radio's The House of Mystery, a show I intermittently co-host with author and friend of the Dark Poutine podcast, Alan R. Warren, I was lucky enough to speak with cult expert and deprogrammer Rick Ross. Rick is the author of the book Cults Inside and Out and runs the Cult Education Institute and website culteducation.com. In his book, Ross defines the three characteristics of a destructive cult as, first, a charismatic leader who increasingly becomes an object of worship as the general principles that may have originally sustained the group lose their power. As well as Jure and DeMombro, the subjects of this podcast, other examples are the leader of the People's Temple, Jim Jones, Charles Manson, leader of the family, and Heaven's Gate's Marshall Applewhite. The second of the characteristics of destructive cults is that the sect will employ a process Ross calls coercive persuasion or thought reform. For example, Marshall Applewhite required his followers to cut ties with family and friends whom he said would hold members back in their quest to attain a level above human. All reading material may have to be approved by a cult leader as well. Use of other media like radio, TV, and internet might be restricted or forbidden entirely to prevent the message being diluted. 
economic, sexual, and other forms of exploitation by group members by the leader and the ruling coterie is the third characteristic that Ross points to as a red flag and possibly indicating a destructive cult mindset. Nexium was a multi-level marketing company that offered personal and professional development seminars through its executive success programs. Inside Nexium, which had a lot of Canadian connections, leader Keith Ranieri, who claimed to be the smartest man in the world, with the help of Smallville actress Alison Mack, created a cult within a cult. The pair and other pre-initiated accomplices used the main company as a recruiting platform for a secret society called DOS, in which women were branded and forced into sexual slavery, with promises of a more overall successful life as part of the lure. On the intervention page of Rick Ross's site in response to the question, how should family and friends act when they suspect that someone they love is involved with a potentially destructive group slash leader, Ross wrote, quote, Remain calm, you may be wrong. Don't be confrontational or jump to conclusions. Instead, investigate thoroughly and discreetly discover as much information as possible. First, check the internet, library, and public records for specifics about the group slash leader. You might also make quiet inquiries with local clergy, police, social services, and public safety in the community where the group slash leader is located. Organize a file for notes, articles, and other information that you may gather. You can find links to more information on cults and Rick's Institute in the show notes for this episode. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 188, Tuesday is Doomsday, The Order of the Solar Temple, what are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? Okay, you can probably help me here, Mike. Mm-hmm. I do not understand how people can allow themselves to be persuaded into these cults. Yep. Like, there's, in my mind, there's a distinct lack of critical thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a kid, and I feel horrible for these little kids that were killed especially, right? Right. But if you're a kid and you grew up in it, you knew nothing else, then I get it. But as a full-sized adult... Is there like some deep needs or some psychological problem? Like what? Because like I would never do it, right? And and but that's not saying like I'm just in the place in my life where I never would. Like I know I never would. But how do intelligent people get sucked into this shit? There's usually three main reasons why mm-hmm. people join cults. Okay. And those are they want to better themselves either professionally or personally. So look at Nexium, for example. Those people are going there to better themselves in business in their personal lives, to help themselves become a better person. Mm -hmm. The culty stuff comes later after you get sucked in. You know, like they want a greater sense of community. Some people are lonely and they they want people of like mind to be around. Okay. Others are in a state of extreme vulnerability. You've just had a loss in your life. Uh, You're looking for a way out of the grief. Maybe you're not quite achieving the things that you would like to achieve in life. You want an answer. You want an easy answer. I was looking for those kind of answers myself before I sobered up. I was a seeker. I was definitely a seeker. I could have been sucked into a cult very easily. I read the book Dianetics, and I loved what it had to say. Is that? Scientology. So I went to the Scientology Center in Halifax, and I spoke to them about becoming a member and getting tested and all that kind of stuff, having my engrams read and all of that kind of nonsense. I was looking for some better way of life. 
the internet wasn't around at the time, so I didn't know that Scientology was a cult. But yeah, it just made sense to me. They didn't really want me and they wanted me to pay more money. So I thought, okay, somebody wants money, an alarm bell went off. Yeah. You know, so I didn't get involved with them also looked at Buddhism. It didn't speak to me in a way that it might today. But I was one of those people who was in an extreme state of vulnerability. I was sick. I was very sick. I was not, I don't think I was an unintelligent person, but I was a very sick person who just wanted to find a different way to live than the way I was living. I heard somebody describe a cult as other people's religion. No, it's it's not quite that simple. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting way of thinking about it because mm. if the people think they're in the right with theirs, <laughs> they call they call a cult. Yeah, other people's religion. But we go back to what Rick Frost was saying, like yeah. the definition of a cult, like a dangerous cult. There well, are there are cults that you can join that aren't. They're happy cults, I'm y sure. Right? Yeah, sure. Right, a cult like a cult doesn't have to be negative, does it? Well, no. Does it? No, I don't it, think so. Like sometimes I need a good brainwashing, you know? Well, <laughs> maybe my brain's a little messed up and I need a good wash. And what cults do we belong to that we don't even think of them as being cults? Um, well, the cult of Steve we talked about right. earlier. Um, well, there is like the cult of Is National is National Pride a cult in a way? Sure it is. Yeah. yeah, sure it is. Um, if you think about it, um patriotism in a big way. I mean, we're seeing how culty it is across the border yeah um and how people will defend it to the death you know in spite of good critical thinking as yeah. you mentioned uh you know you've spoken a lot about critical thinking to me around this and mm. and yeah I, I think that's the that's the problem is like we don't we don't take time to step back and say is that really the way it is like mm. if you can't question something it's probably dangerous. Yeah. If somebody says, no, if you question me, you're out. Good. I'm going. See yeah, you later. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. It's a rough one. It's a little different, I think. Mm. <laughs> My friend Brad uh, Conrad and I, when we were kids, sorry, I just outed him, like actually used his name. But Brad and I, we decided that we would develop a cult when we were in high school. Oh, you and it crazy was, kids. It was called Spudism. Right. We were Spudists. Okay. We worshipped scallop potatoes. Oh, I like scallop potatoes. Yeah. And uh, we, so we changed some of the names of the holidays. We made things up about it. And Christmas Day was when Spudda slipped and fell on the ice mm -hmm. outside the skating rink mm -hmm. and hurt his bum and said, Christ my ass. So it was Christmas, Christmas Day. <laughs> I know we were kids. We so were kids. yeah, we weren't. I kind of have the cult of Steve going, don't I? You do. Definitely there is a cult around Stephen the Bulldog. <laughs> He's a fine little man. I like the picture of his bum that you posted just recently. Yes. And also the one of him sort of standing while he, while he's sleeping. He sleeps standing up with his back legs. Yeah. But his paws on the arm of the chair of the sofa sound asleep. Very weird. We will find out a week after this recording if steve has behaved himself in the past week while he's with the babysitter i'll report back in next week folks actually it won't be next week because we're taking next week off but i'll report in a few weeks <laughs> yeah anyway that's right it's time for voicemails you can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK 
PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here's another one from Alberta. We have a lot of callers from Alberta lately. So what's wrong with the rest of the country? Give us a call. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Albertans calling. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Uh, here we go. Well, hello, gentlemen. I just finished listening to the 9-11 podcast. And uh, it's talking about it again in such great detail. It's almost as surreal as it was back then. Um, I also wanted to say I have a few suggestions for some future podcasts. Strangely, um, I was, uh, probably about 20 years ago, I was asked out by a guy who was accused, and there was a big sting, whatnot, um, was accused of the Crown Packaging double murders in Edmonton a number of years ago by the name of Jason Dix. And also, I went to high school with a girl in Calgary named Denise Lapierre, who uh, was murdered in, I was say, 87, um, and it turned out to be a serial killer who killed her. So, just a couple ideas for the show. Um, anyway, you guys are fabulous, and of course, Steve is fabulous, but we know this already. Anyway, um, you can get a hold of me if need be, but you probably won't need to. Anyway, look into both those cases. They're both pretty interesting. Love you both. Keep doing the good things, and go shoot your hat. Bye. Well, thank you so much. That was great. Um, yeah, everybody's got to mention Steve now, which is fantastic. <laughs> I love it that uh, we have a, a bulldog kind the of official mascot. We, yeah, I need to get maybe cartoons drawn of us with yeah, you and that. I and Steve. That'd be fun. It would be fun. Here's one that looks like it is coming from Ontario. So people other Ooh, than Alberta Ontario. calling. In. Let's let's listen. Hi, Mike, and hopefully Matthew. My name is Sam, and I live in Kingston, Ontario. I've been listening to the podcast for about a year and a half, and after hearing other podcasts mention your podcast, decided to check it out, and I've absolutely loved it ever since. I've been wanting to call in for a while, but with your tribute episode to the September 11th World Trade Center attack, it made me decide that this week would be the week. I'm sure a ton of people are calling in this week. I was at my first day of kindergarten when the towers were struck, and I recall a few teachers crowding around a TV in the corner. I remember seeing the images flash by the thought that they were watching a movie. For the most part, I didn't really realize what was happening until a few years later. About eight or nine years ago, my uncle's partner, now wife, Patricia, hi Aunt Patricia, uh, opened up her about her experience. She was in New York for work and had been staying in a hotel downtown. She was running a few minutes late for a meeting and was trying to quickly make her way down the street. She heard the crash overhead, saw the fires, and a stranger waved her off the street and into a building for shelter. She was supposed to be in a meeting at the World Trade Centers in one of the towers. Probably the closest connection I've had to a case so far, and luckily she was late to her meeting. Um, my sister, though, is a lawyer in Toronto, and she's had a client or two be murdered. I went to school with a girl that moved away from my hometown, Port Perry, and she was murdered. Anyways, I just wanted to thank you both for doing such a great job as always. Mike, thank you for continuing the podcast despite everything that's going on. 
I'd love to see an episode, by the way, with Matthew and Carol interacting. I think that would be hilarious. One last thing is I think you guys should consider doing an episode on the Allen Memorial Institute, Dr. Ewan Cameron, and the CIA Mind Control Program, MKUltra. It's quite fascinating. Sorry for the echoey sound in here. I just recently moved to a new house, and you could probably hear uh, that was trouble, my cat. Um, P.S. I just told you to go shit in your hat in sign language. Thanks for everything. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, go shit in your chapeau in sign language is fantastic. Yep, um, already planning an episode on that MK Ultra stuff. So last year in my previous job, I was selling a cannabis strain called MK Ultra. Oh, that's funny. Well, thanks. For, thank th you. Thank you for calling, and thank you for sharing your uh, the connections that you had to some of those cases, especially uh, nine eleven. Um, yeah, I, I obviously I've known a couple of people who were involved in that situation mostly the aftermath but very very interesting uh yeah just i don't i get very i get kind of tongue-tied around 9-11 for some reason i don't have a lot to say about it mm -hmm. i said what i said in the episode but i don't have a lot more and Can, that doesn't usually happen to mike no <laughs> that's true uh, let's listen to one more this is from, it looks like, Marianne in New Brunswick. Oh, thank goodness. More people. Hi, Mike and Matt. Uh, my name is Marianne. I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener, and yes, I've always wanted to say that. Um, I live in Moncton, New Brunswick, but I was actually born and raised in Toronto, and I'm actually studying to be a registered nurse. Uh, a friend of mine recommended your podcast to me back in January because I was kind of looking for some things to listen to when I go trail running and I wasn't really sure where to start and I'm really glad she recommended you because I've devoured the entire catalog and as of last week I am fully caught up so I just figured now would be the optimal time to kind of tell you how much I appreciate you and all the hard work and the research you put into the episodes the compassionate nature of your approach and just the right balance of seriousness and humor. And um, yeah, not a lot of other podcasts do that. I've kind of been trying to find some other ones to listen to, to fill the void while I wait for a new episode to drop. And let me tell you, a lot of them are just really blah, you know, boring hosts and just not enough research. They just sound so unprepared. And I guess the silver lining is it just makes uh, me appreciate you all the more. So um, thank you again, and you are officially tied for the number one spot on uh, my Spotify in terms of podcasts, the other one being True Crime and Cocktails, which is also hosted by um, two Canadians, and they have a different approach to true crime, but equally as interesting, and I actually had a dream the other night that the four of you teamed up for an episode, and I was pretty disappointed when I woke up and realized it wasn't a thing, so Anyways, I'm rambling now, so I just wanted to say thank you again for all your, your insight and your hard work, and definitely keep it up, because clearly I need you. There's uh, not enough um, good podcasts out there, so go take a shit in your hat, and love you guys. Well, thank you so much. That's neat. Another person who is going into service as a nurse. That's neat. I, I just have Leonard Cohen in my head. So. Why Leonard Cohen? 
Now so long, Marianne, it's time that we began to laugh and cry and laugh and cry again. Remember? Oh, yeah, I love yeah. Leonard Cohen. Thank you, Marianne. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, that'd be a fun for, uh, podcast with the four of us. It uh, it would. I don't know those people, so. Uh, true crime cocktails and two sober guys. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, we don't have any donut money or Patreons to shout at this week because we're taking a break. So we went over all our patrons and donut money donors in the last episode. The next Dark Poutine episode will drop on the 4th of October. So yeah, you won't hear us on the 27th of September, but on little, the fourth. Little mini vacation. Little mini vacation. The reason we're doing it is because Matthew is going away. And I don't want another co-host anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm, t I'm tired of like scrounging for co-hosts. When is this going to air? This particular episode yeah. on the 20th. Of this month. Of this month. Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show if you already haven't. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing until we return. That's right, return in two weeks. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.